Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. Sitting across the interrogation room from me today is filmmaker, true crime podcaster, screenwriter, and novelist Eric Pruitt. In 2011, Eric wrote and produced the short film Foodie, which went on to win eight top awards at more than a dozen film festivals. Since then, he's written several others, along with short fiction that's appeared in the Avalon Literary Review, Thug Lit, Pulp Modern, and Zimble, among others, and he was a 2014 finalist for a Derringer Award. Eric's also written three novels, entitled Dirtbags, Hashtag, and What We Reckon, which released in 2017. He also hosts a long-form podcast called The Long Dance, which details the stories of the lives touched by two North Carolina cold case murders from 1971. Welcome to Writers on the Beat, Eric. I appreciate you spending time today. Oh, thank you very much for having me. And you are a man of many titles. How did you come to be a professional creative? I think it was just something I was always doing. And then uh, I didn't start getting published or produced until 2011. And after that first time, man, I, I you know, you have to keep chasing that high to keep doing it yes. over and over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, chasing a digital dragon. <laughs> right? <laughs> Now, I, I'm reading What We Reckon Now, and I really enjoy the unique voices you've breathed into these characters. For readers who are new to you in this book, what do you want them to know about it? Oh, well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, what We Reckon is basically the story of two grifters who wander into East Texas, small East Texas community, Nacogdoches, Lufkin, with a hollowed out King James Bible full of cocaine. And uh, the two of them have to learn to uh, trust each other all over again when they are both starting to slowly lose their mind. Now, for me, what we reckon is a fantastic character study in authentically writing the folks that are sloshing through society's street drug gutters. Uh, my, my past work as a, as a street cop and a nice detective made it really easy to picture these folks and their personalities, their mannerisms, the motives you've given them. And their actions, for me, are absolutely spot on with my real-life experiences. How Thank did, you. How did you go about researching and crafting your characters and giving them these kind of voices? Well, um, uh, we, we probably took different paths. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, most, of, most of my growing up, especially out there in, in East Texas, uh, unfortunately, I ran into far more criminals than I did uh, mm -hmm. actual crime fighters. So, you know, I may or may not have had, you know, a couple of shady roommates or ex-girlfriends or, yeah. or what or what have you. And I've just always found that to be, you know, that side, that side of the world to have some dark, funny moments in it. And so usually that's what I try to mine a lot of situations for is, are the laughs. Yeah. And, you know, and that's, uh, that's, that's uh, I think, exactly what the word allegedly was intended for right there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I was actually talking to uh, uh, another another cop and author, Brian Shea, about a book he's written called Murder 8 that's about the the current fentanyl and heroin epidemic in mm -hmm. the northeastern U.S. and Boston in particular. And uh, he and I both in our narcotics experience, he, he was talking about how oftentimes his discussions and uh, dialogue and interaction with the, uh, with the addicts, uh, his informants, with uh, the arrestees, was oftentimes a lot more interesting than, you know, talking to his other cop buddies. Their stories oftentimes were a lot more intriguing than, 
what uh, what the other cops had to say. Well, that's that that is probably true for for a uh, for someone you know working on the job, but it also works the flip side for someone like me. You know, it, I have had experience with uh, you know not necessarily all negative experiences with sure. law enforcement. I did have a roommate once that was on the job in Dallas, and then my last two and a half years working on the Law and Dance actually exposed me to a lot of awesome law enforcement um officials and it's the same thing on the other side like the, I, I love listening to cops talk man there's like a jazz to some of they've got the little they've got the little nicknames they use for people yeah. and their stories are just flat out hilarious from from a different from a different standpoint so yeah it, it absolutely works on the other side as well yeah i didn't uh, didn't realize you've got some personal connections to to Nacogdoches. one of my long uh, almost lifelong adult lifelong friends uh, is is from Nacogdoches. That's where where he uh, and his family grew up. Oh wow! Um, yeah, and uh, I went out there with him. Man, it must have been like two thousand, two thousand one, something like that. And uh, I'd never, I was probably I was still there. You know, I, I'd never seen a uh, a city, a little town in the U.S. with uh, you know cobblestone streets before. That totally blew me away. Yeah, it's the oldest town in Texas. Davy Crockett actually stopped through there to supply up on his way to the Alamo. Um, and I went to uh, I went to college there, and it's just one of those places I love going back. It's a creepy town. Yeah, it's a weird it's a weird town. Uh, you get a lot of mix of crazy people. One story I like to tell is uh, when I was on a on on a book tour, I got to go to all these different bookstores across Texas. And it's one of my most favorite moments as a professional writer. It made me feel like a professional. So I was sitting in Nacogdoches, uh, signing books, and I'm having a conversation with a lovely, delightful man in a top hat who is ranking <laughs> his favorite alien abduction experiences for me. <laughs> and I looked over his shoulder and saw standing in line was Mr. Joe R. Lansdale himself with a copy of my book for an autograph. And I was like, oh, wow. my God, not only. Is this moment awesome? But it's made all the more awesome by how weird Nacogdoches is. Now, isn't that, uh, is that uh, Sam Houston? Is that the name of the school there? No, that's Stephen F. Austin. That's right, Stephen F. Austin. That's right. Yeah, yeah. The, Sam my, Houston lives down there in Huntsville. No, Sam Marcus. Yeah, yeah. It was a it was a pretty interesting place. We spent uh, most of the time uh, out on uh, my my buddy's family's uh, little. Emu Ranch, uh, right out oh, yeah. on Lake San Rayburn, and yeah, it was a, uh, it was an adventure. Out there in Nacogdoches, you could you could watch a chicken fight, you know, on one side of the county, and then go to the other side of the county, and there's a converted double wide trailer that's been turned into a strip club <laughs> called Club Two Two Five because it's off Highway Two Two Five. Yeah, that that would be if if. Anybody's listening that that would like uh, uh, to go someplace on a research trip for a character study, I would definitely recommend the joint. Oh yeah, definitely. Now, how how is your research into your fictional works? Uh, how how has that ever changed the story that you intended to write? Mm, no, but it's given a lot of depth to something. So, you know, most of the times I do kind of with, uh, I, I do like to draw on personal experience for a majority of my research. But when I'm trying to get into a character, like say a character has a particular fascination or uh, maybe even an occupation, and the more and more I research the uh, fascin, you know, that particular hobby or job, the more and more I get to dig further into the character and his own motivation. So it may take the character in an interesting way. I hadn't I hadn't thought of before. 
Uh, how would you describe your fiction and what, what genre do you think that uh, your works belong in? Well, the word noir always gets kind of looped in there because the, the definition of noir I've liked the best is, you know, someone, you know, like back in the old days, tragedy was a man falls from a very high place, a powerful man falls mm-hmm. from a very high place. And I say noir is kind of the same thing, except that high place is the top of the gutter. So he doesn't have that much further down to go. Um, And it's a series of like just mistakes because that that he keeps making over and over that draw further into a whirlpool. Because, I mean, I think that's one thing that especially, you know, y'all folks on the job can attest to uh, is that, you know, anybody can be a killer at any Mm -hmm. time. Yes. Most of the time, these murders that happen, it's from somebody they know and it wasn't planned you know so it's something you know it's something that happened and so you watch a regular person get into a jam like that and watch them try to get out and nine times out of ten only make it worse so noir yeah. or dark comedy are the two things i kind of like I, I i feel privileged if people compare me, you know line me up with and on on that note uh, what books would you most like to see surrounding your works at uh, barnes and noble or uh, in an amazon um, Country Hardball by Steve Weddle, uh, Peckerwood by Jedediah Ayers. That's a great one. Um, and then the, uh, um, the Winter's Bone by Daniel Woodrell, all books by William Gay, anything by Flannery O'Connor. You know, I really, really love, you know, the Southern dark mm-hmm. voices, um, and all the more points if they can, if they can, you know, suss out some humor. Yeah, you know, that's one of the things that I think is really important uh, for writers not to forget is that uh, comedy is entirely rooted in tragedy. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there is no comedic effect without some sort of tragic occurrence. Um, and in order to, to tell these, I think, these dark stories of humanity, you either are going to drive your listeners and readers to uh, suicide in the next 90 minutes, or you're going to have to... <laughs> Uh, have to you know fill some some dark comedy in there to make it uh, make it palatable. Oh, absolutely! The, the old Greeks used to be really really good at it because they'd tell these great tragedies and then they'd have this extra play on at the very end. It was usually I think they call it like satyr play, and it was like something that's kind of related to the play, but it would have a lot more humor to it because they wanted people to get up and go to work the next morning. It's like, you just hit them with this gnarly tragedy and then you expect them to like, what, go out for dessert after, you know? So, so you give them like one little thing to, so that that way they could, you know, they can, they can, they can sleep well at night. So what is your study of, of writing craft and storytelling been like over the years? Well, out there at Stephen F., when I was going to college, I'd have loved to have taken a creative writing class. And they they just didn't have one. They had like one. And it was being taught by a guy who had retired three years ago, but they kept digging him up to like Uh. do one more class. And he was just, he just wasn't having it. So I was like, well, if they only have one class, I'm going to wait until they get a new guy. And so that way I can take it and actually learn something. And they never did. So uh, I was forced to go into literature. To, to study literature because I was like, well, if I can't be taught how to write, I'm at least going to teach how learn how to read so that that way, uh, you know, so I just ended up taking all the literature classes and learning how to read classics and et cetera. So I always hope I'm bringing a little of that sensibility without boring anybody or trying to teach a class. So then when did you first know that you wanted to write and what was that experience like kind of that, that realization that that was what the future held for you? 
I'm not 100% sure, but I have right here on my wall, um, after I published my first novel, my mother sent me uh, an old piece of paper that she had saved from like when I was four years old and is telling a story. Um, and it's on both sides. The spelling's not that great. You know, the plot <laughs> development didn't really go anywhere. Um, a lot of the characters were named Batman or yes. Spider-Man or whatever, but, um, but still she was like, you know, she was told me she was always really proud of that. that I was, I was writing down stories even way back then. And so it was somewhere in there and I didn't know anybody would want to read them, you know, until like about 2010, 2011, many, many years later, when I just started digging through the podcast, these old stories I'd always saved. I was like, how can I make these readable you know now that i have a new i don't know outlook on things so it's only been for the last eight years really that i've been getting published and produced but i, I think i've worked my tail off the last eight years well that's that's one of the uh one of the recurring themes of this podcast is that it generally only takes about a decade of consistent non-stop blood sweat and tears to become an overnight success and um, <laughs> you know i i find that that journey is pretty consistent you know it's I, I there are very few lightning strikes they do happen but i i've met very few of them and most people spend an awful lot of time in study improving and and uh making themselves uh basically uh bringing themselves up to the point that they're they're ready to be in the spotlight that's always really encouraging you know hearing hearing that that's always really really encouraging yeah you know I think that, uh, you know, for somebody that wants to just jump into this with, you know, the first thing they ever put on paper and make a million, um, it's hopefully discouraging to them. But I think for, for <laughs> the rest of us that are, you know, still working the way toward that decade that, you know, we're, uh, th there's a light at the end of the tunnel, right? Mm -hmm, absolutely. And, you know, it does, it does make, you know, some of these overnight successes, it does make fun treasure hunting yes. when you hear somebody and you're like, oh, wait, they had a whole career before this. You know, I can use the example of like Noah Hawley. He writes uh, the, the Fargo television show, mm -hmm. which is just great. And I'm like, how does some guy just get this show? And then you turn around and look and he's got novels out. He'd worked on other shows. So you get to go back and look at their entire career. And so I hope one day, one day when I nail the lottery, uh, <laughs> that, uh, that they'll, you know, that people would go back and say, Oh man, look, did you know he actually wrote these other books? Not just yeah. this great prize winning TV show. Now going on to your, your podcast, what inspired you to start podcasting and, and to create the long dance? Um, that one, I really couldn't, you know, it, 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 it pretty much kind of came upon me. You know, I watched, um, I, I listened to serial, the old 12 part mm -hmm. true crime investigative podcast, and always thought that that would be something really interesting to do some of the most compelling storytelling I think I've ever heard in my life was serial and the effect it had on me. So I thought, well, you know, the only way I'd ever get to do something like that is if I created some sort of fictional story and then serialized it like that. And I tried to do it and, it, and the weight of it just collapsed on itself. So I abandoned, I abandoned the hope of doing that. Well, one day uh, after I'd written an article for our local newspaper, I was approached by an investigative journalist who said, hey, I love doing longer form pieces. Would you be interested in helping me research a longer form piece? And we'll try to sell it to a newspaper or magazine, something nonfiction. And I was like, yeah, that'd be great. He challenged me. He said, you go home and come up with five stories you think would be worthy of our attention. And I'll come up with five and we'll meet for coffee and compare notes. Well, I came home and uh, started digging around and I came up with one. Uh, one that there were no other four. There was one. And it was basically <laughs> the story of the, 
the North Carolina Valentine's murders happened in 1971. Two kids were abducted about a block away, about, excuse me, a mile away from where I currently live now in the same neighborhood. And their bodies were found two weeks later, about a mile in the other direction from where I currently live. They'd been strangled and tortured and, uh, and covered with leaves. And 46 years had gone by and there was never any more information on this case. What happened to these kids? Why no one was ever arrested? You know, nothing at all. And everywhere I looked, I just kept coming up with more and more questions. So when I met my partner for coffee, I told him, I said, hey, man, I didn't come up with five. I came up with one. And he agreed. He put away his five and was like, nope, that's the one. So we uh, we got to work. Now, to me, investigative journalists fill an exceptionally important role in free societies and, and often serve to keep cold cases active, identify new suspects, and, and find justice for long-forgotten victims. In my mind, efforts like the long dance absolutely fall into investigative journalism rather than, you know, like we think of podcasts, I think more or less pure entertainment. Uh, How do you see you, the show, and your partners fitting into that identity of investigative journalism? Well, uh, it could easily be put um, into words by what was said to us by basically who we teamed up with on this venture, which is now retired Major Tim Horn of the Orange County Sheriff's Office. He ran the criminal investigation division there. And he told us no over and over when we kept trying to get access to this case. Mm-hmm. And his involvement was it was that he had found the case files a couple years earlier and opened the case and had been investigating it. As, a, as law enforcement, he had pretty much reached the limit of what he was able to do with what they had. But he had enough, basically, to uh, to on a person of interest, on a couple of persons of interest. And with the resources that they had, um, they, Tim thought that it, uh, Major Horn thought it would be great to work with us because we were going to be investigating it anyway. And if we joined forces unofficially, we could come, we, we could help out with his investigation. So what he had told us, he gave us, uh, three mandates. He wanted to make sure that, uh, he said, under no circumstances is my sheriff allowed to look bad. You know, because mm-hmm. he was the sheriff's a really good man. He didn't want us to get to do something stupid to get him in trouble. So we understood. There were three suspects they were never able to rule out. He wanted us to to equally investigate all three in our work. You know, so if we say that one did it, we need to show that the other two didn't do it. Yep. Um, and the third was that his number one person person of interest he believed had forever operated in the shadows over these last 46 years. And this person was allowed to get away with some very, very dastardly things. And he said he wanted to see what would happen if we shone a light on the son of a bitch. So, uh, <laughs> so there, his hands were pretty much tied on what he was allowed to do anymore because of what the law said. Yes. My partner, uh, the investigative journalist said journalists were also kind of bound in what they could do, but there's like a little overlap there where, where we could help, where we thought we could provide help. We'd also talked a lot with the families of these victims, and they also had had their own issues for the last 46 years. So we felt like we owed them a little something, too, you know, that, that, to show them that the world didn't just forget um, about these two people that, uh, you know, were cruelly taken away in 1971. Now, you touched on a, a number of things that it's like you're reading off my notes here for the next uh, five or six questions I wanted to bring up. Uh, <laughs> but one of the things that I think – has become such a massive and popular trope 
uh, is the antagonistic relationship between the press and the police, especially for investigative journalists. And, you know, it sounds like that your relationship with Major Horn changed pretty significantly over first contact to to this partnership. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And he's, uh, you know, he's, he's one of those guys that he does, he seems to have a good relationship with the media. There's all, and pretty much all the Orange County Sheriff's Office does as well. Their, their whole approach is openness. Um, but it hadn't always been, which is what was extremely interesting because you can contrast, you know, the 1971 Orange County Sheriff's Office, which was, you know, a very small county, mm-hmm. um, with very limited resources to what they have now in 2019 with the current sheriff, Charles Blackwood, is uh, very open with the media. He, he's open with the community. He wants to show everybody the inner workings of what their law enforcement agency is doing for him. And so that approach did did help out a lot. Um, uh, that 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 made it kind of a unique situation. We we told ourselves over and over when we were working on this, we were like, man, there's it's not likely that you know, we could ever get this much cooperation mm-hmm. ever again, but they, they were, they were great. They had nothing to hide. They had nothing to hide, but they showed everything warts and all. There were some issues in 1971 between law enforcement and the media, sure. which is why uh, 47 years later, the information we were releasing had never been released before. You know, that's one of the, the other realities in this too, is that journalists have a very different relationship with the public than law enforcement, and you folks are able to get tremendous access to people oftentimes that are unwilling to share their stories with the cops, but they'll talk to a journalist or a firefighter all day. Um, mm-hmm. How how has that worked in, I guess, the benefit of the case, and what was your experience like in, in trying to get access to these folks after all this time? Oh, that's, that was absolutely the case. There were um, several instances where, you know, people have gone off the grid and they weren't able to be found with the uh, law enforcement databases. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, cause a lot of these people are older, so they don't drive anymore. So therefore, they don't have driver's licenses. So in some cases, we were actually able to use our resources to find people that didn't want to be found. And in other ca- in other cases, just like you said, there's folks that weren't talking to police. There weren't there were people that didn't want to talk to us unless uh, Major Horn vouched for us. So that mm-hmm. worked both ways as well. But the uh, number one suspect had been approached by police and would not talk to police. And we were able to get him to speak with us. And he, he quit after the questioning went a certain way, (laughs) but we were, after he realized what we were, what we were there to talk to him about, but we did get a lot of, we did get a lot out of that conversation that law enforcement was able to use. And that is incredibly invaluable. And to me, this is one of the things that, um, that investigative journalism is really supposed to serve as um, to the public is being able to step into these cases that law enforcement no longer has the legal ability or the resources um, to continue hunting and finding all of this. And you guys have an entirely different approach and a very different relationship. And you're able to really, at the end of the day, I think, help find a lot of justice for these cold cases. It's, and it, you know, it is easy for us, easier for us because, you know, even as we were working with Major Horn, you know, he'd have to cancel, you know, appointments with us because new murders are happening. Yes. You know, so like there's uh, all sorts of crimes that are currently happening. So, you know, he said over and over, he had this case and he had another case, another cold case that he just picked up. And he was like, I would love to just spend my time on these cases. He's, I know I could bring them home, but he's like, I can't. Um, he, he can't, 
they, they just, there's just not enough time. And there's also, if he took money out of the budget to go run DNA tests on a 47 year old piece of rope, how many current cases are not getting that, you know, that attention. So, so it was absolutely our pleasure to, to assist uh, in that and to go digging things up that we could turn back over to him. Um, absolutely. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I really think investigative journalists and law enforcement could be much better partners on is that reality you just brought up is the business of law enforcement is absolutely depressing with limited budgets, limited resources, and having to prioritize current cases, new victims, and active investigations over cold cases that are at a dead end. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, people don't know about that. Yeah. yeah, people don't know about that. All people really know about what's going on in law enforcement is what they see on TV, which is going to be like CSI mm -hmm. or the cold case shows where you can send off the DNA and it'll it'll come to you like five minutes later on screen. Yep. Or or the stuff they see on the news, which is bad actors in some town, <laughs> uh, you know, and then everybody just assumes that, you know, all police are out there just to crack heads and yep. they can get your DNA in five minutes and just choose them not to. So I think in some of these cases, you know, they didn't want us giving out numbers mm -hmm. about how much, right. you know, they have budgeted for DNA and et cetera. But people do need to know that there is a number, you yeah. know, that there is a budget. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I, I wish we would shine a, a brighter light on and, and share more information with the public on is that reality um, and the limitations of it and having to prioritize. Um, and it's 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 ugly and nobody likes to do it, but it's it's just a reality. Absolutely. How have your expectations of this case and your work with the long dance changed from its inception to today? I've had some of the biggest highs in my life. Um, I think three of the most thrilling moments of my entire life uh, have happened during this. The entire thing was a privilege. And, and of course, like I told you, I used to, you know, I used to write obsessively about you know dirtbags and criminals because that's the point of view that i was more familiar with and then as soon as you know throughout this entire experience i've been more interested in you know the detective side of things so i've had some of the greatest highs but i've also had some of the greatest heartbreaks yes um you know dealing with you know to have that 45 day wait you know it was hard enough to get dna it was hard enough to get uh the DNA tested to get the, you know, the, the resources and everything to get the DNA tested. It was hard enough to wait 45 days for those results to come in. And, you know, as is communicated on the, on, in the podcast, it's not really a spoiler when those re results did come in, they weren't exactly what we wanted. And uh, that was a heartbreak. And then when we, and then, you know, we pull, we pull from the ashes, the Phoenix from the ashes, this last Hail Mary pass. And uh, with events that came out after the podcast happened, the, the investigation actually continued for another few months. Yeah. And the results of that were so thrilling. I actually participated in a lineup, me. You know, I've collected DNA. I have participated in a lineup. All of these things were, you know, were going. And we got a positive ID out of the lineup. I still get goosebumps. And, you know, in the end, the DA decided not to pursue it. And that still oh, that still funny. breaks my heart yes. when I uh, when I think about that. And that was that's just one case for me. You know, Major Orn had dealt with several instances like that. You know, but that one for me is just it was just it still gets me. Uh, you you brought up earlier the the uh, the legal considerations and the ethics that law enforcement and journalists need to abide by, and even though they're a little bit different, they still exist. And I I wonder if during the course of this 
investigation if you and your your folks ran into any ethical dilemmas about how to proceed? Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, I do like to point out that, um, you know, Major Horn was the, is, was the law enforcement and my partner, Drew Adamek, was the journalist. And uh, they had they each had their own ethics. I was a fiction writer and I was bound by neither. <laughs> <laughs> That's an important clarification for those following along at home. <laughs> What what kind of dilemmas did you guys face during this? We uh, there were several times where we were wondering if we should tell we you know where we were wondering if we should be recording this conversation. Yes. Um, that you know times where there were um, there were a couple of hidden microphone situations, mm-hmm. and we checked into it, and we knew that we were legally on solid ground. Um, uh, little things like that, you know, stuff like that. There was. Uh, you know, I, I did find out the rule of what was excessive, you know, what was legal. If it was, if the trash can is on the street, yep, everything's fair game. If it is not on the street, it is not fair game. So there's a, there's a couple of things that we looked into, but you know. Yeah, that's uh, the, the trash rips were one of my favorite parts of, uh, of the job when I worked narcotics, getting to, getting to dress up like a trash man and dig through somebody else's garbage is uh, surprisingly exhilarating. <laughs> it is, especially when, you know, you're, you think that you may have found something very important. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And we weren't even looking for something as important as DNA or solving a murder. It was just, you know, dope and guns. I, I wonder what your relationship uh, was like during the show with, with other journalists in terms of, um, I guess, respect and ethical considerations. Did you guys have a lot of run-ins with, with other uh, more conventional reporters? We were interviewed several times for uh, TV media and radio, like on the NPR and on other um, and print media and such. So, we, I mean, we'd been interviewed several times. I don't think there was really anything contentious. A couple of they most most of the other journalists spoke with Drew because he was one of them. Yeah. Um, I don't think you know. I, I don't know necessarily that podcasting is getting its true. Um, is if, if they're really getting its true respect from a lot of the more established journalist crowds, but uh, I have uh, found a few of them that have been really, 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 really cool and dig the uh, and dig the whole thing. Now, one of the things that I, I've talked with a, another investigative journalist, uh, Kevin Deutsch, about was that you know looking at at the press from the outside, uh, it, it seems that social media platforms have so drastically changed the face and the process of journalism that legitimate long-running news organizations are actually kind of getting down in the gutter to compete with untrained, unethical, and sometimes, oh, absolutely. Quite frankly, uneducated bloggers in this race mm-hmm. to the bottom. Um, mm-hmm. It seems like a lot of times people are more worried about being right. I'm sorry, being first than being right. And absolutely. This race to the bottom to me is, is kind of terrifying and dangerous from a, a, a personal liberties perspective that such a small portion of the public gets news from multiple sources when fact checkers and editors fail or they get cast aside. I, I kind of think we end up living out the plastic walled reality that Hunter S. Thompson warned us about. Absolutely. Yeah. I kind of have a two sided thought on that. You know, one is that, yeah, I, you just, you can just tell that journalism's going down because of the, um, I think because of the prolificity of blogs and social media, 
like you said, but also, you know, you try to read a newspaper. Remember back in the day when you got the main information yeah. in the first paragraph, yep. well, you don't really have people going to J school anymore, you know, <laughs> to do that. Those are too expensive. So you're basically promoting somebody from the blog to, uh, to run your news organization. And we're seeing it happen out here in Raleigh. You know, this is the two main papers. You just watch them get gutted and turn into toilet paper. So that's horrible. But the other side of it too, is like true crime itself, the journalism, it's all going to TV shows and a week has not gone by that. I'm not approached by some true crime TV producer. Um, they, the pot, the, the story now comes up in a lot of Google searches when before it didn't. And a lot of times it leads them straight to me and all they really want, is, you know, once they find out, you know, the details of the case, which they can find out because this podcast is available for free, you know, they can, all they got to do is listen to it. They're going to know the limitations that they don't bother to go in and look at because they want to have, you know, they want me to sign a paper that gives them the whole deal yes. for, uh, yeah, for nothing. And then, uh, yeah, and it's, it's, it's been, it's been extremely predatory the way that these true crime TV people are treating the family, yes. uh, the families of the victims. It's, uh, there's, there's really no respect for the actual story. What they want to have is a DNA case that, you know, that they can solve in a 48 minute time slot. Mm-hmm. And this, this case isn't that, you know, this case is not just a story. This case is actually like several people's stories, their lives. And, um, that was one approach we wanted to make sure that we took. This isn't going to be a DNA case, a DNA being solved at the last minute. This is the story of two people that were murdered in 1971, a community that never really recovered from that, and someone who was allowed to get away, walk free, and be a prominent member of this community for 50 years and get away with it. That and several other things. And that's what this is. And for some reason, that just doesn't seem to resonate. Uh, with the 48-minute structure that so-called journalism is uh, experiencing on true crime television these days. See, that's incredibly disconcerting to me to, to hear about kind of the some of the, the ending of this and makes me wonder for you having exposed all this and now publicly living in the town where all this happened, what what is your day-to-day like? Uh, it's it's pretty much the same. I mean, um, I, I, I've moved on to my next story. And, uh, and that's some people know, uh, you know, cause it's podcasting, it's not television. So you're not really going to recognize me at the supermarket. Thank goodness. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, yeah. But, but a couple people have a couple people have, and, um, but everybody's been really congratulatory on it. I, I actually run a bar here in town and a lot of times people will come in there and just they want to hear the latest thing or they want to hear more about it they, they know where to find me but yeah my day-to-day has been pretty much the same i write all day and i work at a bar all night yeah that sounds uh, just about perfect it's it's like an irishman's <laughs> dream yeah all writers end up in a bar eventually <laughs> now for aspiring writers among the audience uh, how would you suggest for someone who wants to be an investigative journalist or to host a podcast like The Long Dance, go about finding an appropriate unsolved crime in their area? Um, uh, just about every law enforcement agency will have a website that talks about unsolved crimes. Um, so you usually can click on it and then go and take a look and then find an angle that you know isn't really covered. You know, I think that there's been a couple, you know, out here in the Raleigh-Durham area, 
we like to say here in Durham, the yes. Durham Raleigh area. Yes. Uh, the um, there's a you know there's a number of crimes that they do get reported on quite a bit. I mean, everybody knows about the staircase or mm-hmm. the Duplicross case, and there's there's all these other stories that have been kind of hot out here. But I mean, there's a there's a there's a lot that just aren't. This is a very very fascinating. This is a very fascinating area to me, and I'm sure you know any of the aspiring writers out there probably live in it. You know, they think they may think, oh, your home, my hometown is boring. Everybody thinks their hometown is boring. But just what you know about it is boring. Mm-hmm. You know, go digging, go digging and you'll find, you know, you'll find something, you know, that crazy person that everybody knew was selling moonshine, you know. <laughs> but uh, what happened to him? Why did they find him stuffed in a trunk? No one ever really talks about it. You know, there's there's urban legends in everybody's town, you know, go go hunting them up. But for me, with the long dance, I mean, all of these things happened within a, a two mile radius of my home and no one ever talked about it. And as soon as we started digging and just scratching the surface, people would be like, yeah, I remember that. I was, I was in high school when that happened. We, you know, my, my parents wouldn't let me go into the woods after that, you know, but they just never really talked about it out in the open. And it just made me ask why, why, why just more and more questions. Why? Now, what would you most like readers and listeners to take away from your writing and from your podcast? I just hopefully that I'm honest, you know, that like if I'm talking about dirty people or if I'm talking about cops or whatever, hopefully they'll they'll say, you know, I was, I was honest. I did my homework. I got in there and, and figured out, you know, the honesty to the situation. Hopefully. If not, hopefully they'll just laugh. <laughs> uh, do you have a, a favorite fictional detective or investigator in uh, TVs, books or film? Uh, I mean, who couldn't like Raylan Givens and, and Justify? <laughs> you know, you are the first person to name him on the show, and he is one of my favorites. Oh, really? Yeah. I oh, man, he's he is good. <laughs> yeah. I absolutely love Timothy Oliphant's portrayal of him, and I, I, I would like to work with him. I would not want to be his boss, but I would love to be his partner. No, no. One of my favorite things he says, it applies almost every day. If you wake up in the morning and you meet an asshole, you met an asshole. If you go to bed at night and you've met 10 assholes, guess what? You're the asshole. <laughs> now, keeping that last answer in mind, one of the things I, I like to ask all the authors who come on this show, God forbid it should ever come to pass, Eric, but if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered, what fictional investigator would you want working the case and why? Yikes. Yikes. Um, well, you remember like basic instinct, you know, that character that Michael Douglas played, I'd like him to investigate it because that meant I was murdered doing some really freaky stuff (laughs) with somebody that looked like Sharon Stone in the nineties. So, I mean, hopefully that's what it calls for because it means at least I went out with a smile. (laughs) That is also the most unique answer I've had to that question, man. I, I have thoroughly enjoyed this interview, and I greatly appreciate you making time for us, Eric. Thank you very much, Gavin. Thank you. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been podcaster, investigative journalist, author, and screenwriter Eric Pruitt. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.